0: Welcome to the Multifamily Five, where industry experts provide raw information about how they're achieving success
1: in the current market conditions. And now, your host, Dallas-based real estate broker, Mark Allen.
0: And welcome to the Multifamily Five. It's your host, Mark Allen, here in Dallas, Texas, and today I have Amy Morgan from Jones-Lang LaSalle. Amy, how's it going?
1: Hi there. It's going well. I can't complain.
0: Absolutely. So last time we connected, you were with CBRE, the big green machine. And I i almost want to call Jones Lang LaSalle, JLL, the, the big red machine, because it seems like uh, they're gobbling up companies and really growing.
1: I tell you what, these days it sure is. And um, I've been really impressed by the growth plans that uh, JLL has and, Um, They've certainly made some very thoughtful additions to their team, especially on the valuation side. And I'm just thrilled to join the team and have a little change of pace. I've been over at CBRE for over 10 years and I'm just enjoying the new scenery.
0: Yeah, well, that's a good segue talking a little bit about your your family history, because it's my understanding. I think you have some some family history in the real estate industry. Um, So if you want to hit on that and kind of where you went to school and kind of your background and experience, that'd be great.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I have a real estate degree from Baylor University. Um, I graduated from there in 2009. And my, uh, my dad's been in the real estate industry for years and years. I grew up um, watching my dad work as both um, first as a banker, um, a mortgage banker for many, many years with um, an established um, bank, a regional bank. And then um, he went off on his own and he's been he's been a broker, he's been a developer, he's been a lender. Um, at the moment, he's an SBA lender, uh, but he's done it all. So I got to kind of have the grand tour of real estate, which was pretty fun. And I landed in the multifamily world myself, which is one place that uh, my family hadn't touched. And so it's been kind of fun to strike out on my own and be a little independent. But I've got that um, that background of of being a child of the commercial real estate industry. And um, some perspective that came from all of that.
0: All right. And what's your focus today?
1: Today, my focus is uh, multifamily appraisal. Um, I cover uh, really what we call our Sunbelt region, which includes Texas, Oklahoma, uh, Arkansas, Louisiana, Tennessee, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, and South Carolina. So it's just a handful of states there. Um, But it's been a really fun uh, expansion for me to add some territory that's uh, somewhat new to me over the past several years and um, grow into those territories and learn some specifics about those markets. My background has been really very deep in Texas, and um, I've spent years and years focused on the multifamily Uh, valuation um, uh, industry in Texas. But um, I've always been familiar with uh, markets all over the country. It's been fun to take on some of those markets on a deeper level.
0: All right. So today, we're going to discuss the appraisal process, uh, number one. And we're also going to talk about changes, uh, looking at last year, uh, pre COVID, and then uh, Post-COVID, we'll talk a little bit about the market, and what you're seeing there, um, and then a little bit about uh, the, the lending environment specifically with with the agencies. So I look forward to getting into our discussion today. Um, for those that that may be a little bit new, whether it be you know the acquisition side or maybe refi, um, the lender is always going to request an appraisal. So what what is the appraiser paying attention to? Um, whenever they go and, and uh, value a property?
1: Yeah, such a great question. And it's, it's such a pivotal one. Um, that's part of the financing process, whether it's an acquisition or a refinance, the appraisal is a key part of the process. And the, the big things that we're looking at when we dive into the appraisal process is um, one, we wanna get a great feel for the asset and its story, um, its overall condition. So when we're walking the property, we're really looking at it with the eye of, um, one, an investor and what are, you know, what what does the typical investor think about this property? How would they feel about it? What would they plan for it? What's the story Um, of how it it got to where it is and where it could go? Um, All of those are important things. Um, We're getting a feel for the overall condition. Have there been upgrades? Have there not been upgrades? Um, What is... Um, uh, what's the potential for for future value add? Uh, And then we're kind of looking at it with the eyes of tenants as well. Um, How does this property compare to the one down the street? How does it compete with the one down the street? Is it better? Is it worse? Does it have something that other properties in the area don't have? Is it missing something that other properties in the area don't have? Um, Those are things that we're paying attention to physically. Um, And then there's the financial component. We're looking really hard at income expenses, net operating income, um, where where has it performed and where is it going? What's the potential for the property to uh, perform? So just because the property has been non-performing in the past doesn't mean it can't perform in the future. That's something that, we're, that we really look closely at and we wanna make sure that we really understand. Um, so those are really the big things. Okay. Um, overall feel of the asset, um, it's, um, it's physical condition and it's characteristics and it's income characteristics
0: yeah so us as brokers um, on the advising front we always advise our clients um, to financially and physically prepare for sale and you know part of that is due to the appraisal process but also just how buyer, buyers view the property so really no different for sale or a refi I think the appraisers are, are looking at a lot of those things great to know um, what about just the process in general? What, what, can, what can buyers or, or borrowers do um, to make the, the process go smoother? Maybe there's some do's and, and some don'ts.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, big one is to make sure that the appraiser has the information that they're going to need um, to do their analysis. And the, the big thing, as we just mentioned, is anything that physically describes the subject. Um, so things like a unit mix, a rent roll, um, uh, general description of the subject, access to the subject, um, meaning uh, if we show up for the inspection, be there on time, uh, make sure they there to, to walk us around and give us access to the units. Um, and then two, that financial information, um, which really is huge focus on the historical operating statements. And frankly, um, your budget as the future operator of this property or the current operator of this property, you have an insight to the property that we as appraisers cannot instantly have. So it's really important for us to be able to see your budget, your plans for the property, your thoughts on how it's going to perform in the future, and a little bit of a why on that as well.
0: Okay. So if expenses are out of line, let's say it's a, a class C property with some mom and pop ownership, and you see really high water and sewer expenses or whatever the case may be. I'm sure you collect a lot of data um, and, and uh, you know, all across the country. So you're able to take a look at not only some of the controllable but non-controllable expenses as well and, and uh, uh, leverage the you know, essentially what we call the pro forma um, expenses on some of those items based on uh, what the buyer plans to do with the property.
1: Absolutely. Um, The water, water expense is a great example. It's so common for us to see a property that has an atypically high water expense and go back to either the owner or the buyer and ask questions about that expense and come to find out, oh, there's been a massive water leak at the subject for the past three months, which has driven up the T12 water expense. That leak has now been fixed, so we would expect the water expense to normalize and perform you know, similar to you know, the 2019 total number, rather than the T12 or uh, something like that. So yes, we are considering normalized and stabilized operations. Mm-hmm. So any detail or color that you can give your appraiser about anything that might be abnormal in the in the past operations or prior operations is really, really insightful and valuable, and frankly, could could end up you know gaining you value. Um, it's so easy for us as appraisers to miss something just because we aren't as in tune with the numbers as, as you know, really you listeners are as investors and owners of properties. So um, please do give us the story. That story is important to us and it impacts the valuation.
0: I'm, I'm just curious if there's a buyer that's looking at a property and they, they own five other properties in the market, let's say it's Dallas-Fort Worth, and across their portfolio their their payroll expense and this would be a low payroll expense but let's say they can operate at 750 dollars per unit um, and the majority of their properties around 200 units and and same with the one that they're purchasing um what would, would the buyer providing um operating expenses across their portfolio to the appraiser would that be helpful in and you know helping prove that out where you know you may underwrite it i don't know 1200 dollars a unit on a 200-unit 200, 200 property, but providing some of that uh, uh, data from their portfolio um, operating expenses, would that be helpful?
1: It could be, yes. Um, from time to time, uh, we're able to collect additional operating statements from owners that have properties all over um, the metroplex market, and those can be really helpful in um, comping out various expense levels for... Um, any given expense light item. However, I will point out that um, as appraisers, we have to look at each property independently. Right. And so we can't factor in things like um, I can run the property at $750 a door for payroll because I own six other properties uh, down the street or in this submarket or in this market at all. Um, we consider each property independently and as if. Um, the the typical pool of buyers this is a a phrase that we use a lot in in the appraisal process the typical pool of buyers is what we would describe as the average um of the pool of buyers so uh one buyer might feel like hey i can operate this thing at 750 a door on payroll but another buyer feels like it's at least 1200 a door on payroll So for us to conclude to either of those would not be really be reflective of the greater pool of typical buyers so what we try to do is we try to best reflect what uh what we think the typical pool of buyers would do on an average basis if that makes some sense
0: yeah okay that's helpful um let's talk about just some of the data points that Um, that that you track and use on your appraisals for specifically for expenses and cap rates. Um, You know, what have you seen this year starting from maybe towards uh, the beginning of the year prior to uh, the the pandemic and then, you know, post pandemic have have some of the operating expenses shifted or changed or um, I don't know, maybe it's, are, are you, are you looking at, uh, uh, delinquency a little more or, or any, anything different as far as that goes?
1: Yes, uh, we certainly saw some temporary shifts in um, in operating expenses during the, uh, the most severe months of shutdown.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and
1: that's something that we're trying to take into consideration in our estimate of expenses um, when we project going forward on a, a pro forma basis. So things like Payroll may have been cut drastically between the months of March through May. Um, uh, Electricity expense for the common areas may have been cut drastically uh, through those months. Um, Maintenance requests were likely much lower, and maintenance costs may have gone down dramatically through those months. So those are things that we're looking closely at, and we want to make sure that we're Um, We're valuing the property with a prudent estimate of of actual operating expenses going forward, just knowing that those months were um, an anomaly in the market and that that nobody really expects to operate apartment properties that way going forward. So um, those expense impacts we consider really very much an anomaly. And frankly, from the collection side, um, we're really looking at that as an anomaly as well. Really, the biggest impact that we're seeing to valuations due to COVID is because of credit loss or rent deferment programs at any given property. Those rent deferment programs are largely being seen at properties that have um, uh, a tenant makeup that's more affected by um, some of the COVID shutdowns and, and job changes that are coming from at COVID. So, for example, properties that had a lot of retail workers through the months of March through, you know, May, even June and July, they have experienced um, heavy credit loss because those many of those workers were just out of work for those months. Um, and so, one thing that we've tried to do is not overly punish properties for something that we think is going to be a temporary. Um, uh, credit loss setback. Um, so we've developed a way to value properties on a stabilized basis as if there's been no impact from COVID. And then we deduct what we think is an appropriate credit loss allocation based on what the property has been experiencing so far due to COVID. Um, I think the general sentiment of the market, and I'd love to hear what you think too, Mark, is that um, we're really kind of through the worst of, of shutdowns and, you um, and the impact of COVID, COVID at least from a, um, a shutdown perspective. And so uh, we look closely at how did the property perform during what we, we perceive as the worst of it, and how do we expect it to perform going forward, and what do we think, again, that typical pool of buyers would feel like the property is going to do going forward, and that's what we try to reflect in our valuation.
0: What about cap rates? I mean, obviously, on the sales side, we're seeing cap rates compress as we as we've seen. Um, you know, collections remain strong, but also interest rates drop. I'm going to say eighty to one hundred basis points from the beginning of the year. Um, so, so naturally, there's some cap rate compression. At least, you know, tracking the Dallas Fort Worth market. But even there was a there was a property that uh, Greystone was refinancing in South Fort Worth, a 1960s. Uh, chiller boiler, uh, Class C property in a low-income area of South Fort Worth, and I heard the on the refi the cap rate was in the low five range, uh, which was surprising to me. But I mean, is there any kind of how does how do you come about um, cap rates, especially you know? Um, I guess your, your appraisers in the given markets are very familiar with what's going on in those markets and are tracking a lot of data points. But uh, how, how do you how do you land on cap rates?
1: They are tracking a lot of data points and sadly you know we wish we had more data points post-COVID to really point to what's truly happened with cap rates um, since all since the shakeup, if you will of, of this pandemic but I do think that cap rates have compressed um, largely due to compression of uh, interest rates which are at some pretty phenomenal levels. I think we'd all agree. Financing is pretty favorable at the moment. And after a short pause in, um, in transaction activity that we saw you know, really starting mid-March through the early summer months, um, we, we really saw investors pause and um, take an attitude of let's wait and see what happens before we make any decisions about placing money anywhere new or trying to um, to do anything new. Let's see what happens to the economy. And really around um, July, uh, we saw that begin to really soften and transaction volume pick up. Since we've seen transaction volume pick up, I've seen nothing but compression in cap rates. And I think that's due to Um, a huge resurgence of capital to the market and several months of pent-up capital demand for multifamily product. I think everyone feels like multifamily is going to continue to perform well, um, unlike office and retail and some other commercial real estate sectors that likely will see some permanent long-term impact of this pandemic. Everybody has to have somewhere to live. And it's made multifamily a, a continued darling of um, investment dollars. And so um, in July, all those investment dollars really flooded back to the market. And uh, we began, especially in DFW, to see that bid ask gap that we were seeing in, um, in March through, you know, kind of late May dwindle. And um, between that and, and interest rates where they are, cap rates have continued to compress. I don't think that we'll see um, rising cap rates anytime soon, unless we see movement in interest rates or we see uh, capital fleeing the market.
0: What, what can investors expect as far as the process goes whenever Um, third parties are ordered Uh, the appraiser probably along with engineers and inspectors come out to the property Uh, how how is COVID you know looking what how many months are we disconnected now seven seven eight months uh, from initial stay in place order so what does that look like today as far as inspections and due diligence for the appraisals
1: absolutely we're largely back to doing full on-site inspections Um, we uh, at least JLL is inspecting um, unit interiors. Um, We were always inspecting vacant unit interiors. We will now inspect occupied unit interiors, but of course, that's always at the discretion of the property owner. Um, It's based on their comfort level, um, what they feel like is appropriate for their property. Um, (coughs) Excuse me. and uh, certainly, we want to uh, be conscious of what the agencies or what the lender um, sees as their um, their appropriate level of due diligence in terms of inspection. So, short version of all that is JLL is largely back to business as usual in terms of on-site inspections. Okay. With, of course, appropriate precautions.
0: Okay. Um all right. So let's let's shift a little bit to market performance. Now you're covering um, you know, a lot of the Sunbelt states and I think you're you're seeing appraisals and um getting a lot of new information in some of these Sunbelt states. What are, are there any markets that um are top as far as transaction velocity goes? Um and and um seems like there's a lot of investor attention um as of recent.
1: Yes. Yeah. We've been seeing some phenomenal activity in Atlanta, um, Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, Jacksonville, Florida, Tampa, um, and Orlando, um, and Raleigh Durham as well. So uh, and one thing that those markets really have in common is that most of those markets are pretty um, uh, pretty suburban driven markets. They may have, you know, they've got urban cores, but for the most part, most of the development is lower density, suburban style development, um, and they're very car dependent markets. And so, mass transit is not an imperative to be able to get around those markets. And so, they've been able to reopen, and their economies have largely Um, begin to return to some sense of normalcy. Jobs have returned in those markets and they're beginning to um, perform very well again after uh, various shutdowns. Uh, The other things that those markets have in common is uh, they're experiencing strong population growth, job growth, um, in migration with um, from you know from other cities. Mm -hmm. They have pro-business uh, local legislations and state legislations um, that are uh, that are incentivizing economic growth in this market
0: yeah yeah I, I was talking with uh, Todd Franks um, here in our office and he's been brokering for about 20 years and he said never in his 20-year career has he seen more uh, coastal investors. Um, you know, emailing him, calling him that are new entrants into, you know, at least the DFW market. And I would imagine that's the same for um, a, a lot of these Sunbelt um, high growth uh, markets that that don't have a lot of uh, government controls and are landlord friendly. Um, you know, just just from I mean, that, that's really the big frustration, as we see, is a lot of the government control specifically with, you know, rent control. Um, on the West Coast and the East Coast, so um, I'm sure they'll
1: Absolutely.
0: perform well over, over the next couple of years.
1: Yes, um, markets like New York City, hmm. Chicago, LA, uh, um, San Francisco, markets that are very dense urban markets and are very uh, pro-tenant um, type climates are certainly struggling. And um, just as an anecdotal example, my brother lived in Manhattan for the last six years and has just moved back to Texas. Um, it just isn't practical to, uh, to live in those environments the way that it used to be. Um, and so I think we've seen a lot of investor um, dollars come from those markets to um, the more central U.S. or Sunbelt markets, or these markets that are more um, more pro-business and and pro-employment, um, and are are getting back to business as usual, largely due to being more spread out and um, and just generally less impacted by COVID. Uh, that largely has probably contributed to a lot of the cap rate compression that we've seen. I've not seen cap rate compression in uh, those markets that I just listed that are, are still struggling with the impacts of COVID.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'd imagine the demand and the interest rates. Um, all right. What, let's talk a little bit about the financing climate. Uh, what, what are the agencies today looking at most closely on acquisitions and uh, refinances?
1: Yeah, um, taxes is always the hot button in Texas and I'm sure that'll come to as no surprise to, uh, to any of your listeners, but um, taxes are always the, the first thing that they want to look at. Um, of course, they're looking at historical operations. Um, the agencies have really um, been very clear about how they, they are willing to underwrite um, income and EGI based on historical performance. And if the impact that's been, experience, been experienced over the, uh, the T3 or the T1 um, at any given property is less than 10% different from the T12 operations for that property, um, there's really no punishment on, on the underwriting uh, for any COVID related uh, impacts. That said, Most properties in DFW have really pretty fully recovered from the impact that they were seeing in terms of increased credit loss from COVID. I don't think, um, and we've handled um, probably about 200 agency appraisals over the past 90 days in DFW. And I don't think I've seen any of those where we had a huge disconnect um, in T3 EGI or collections um, due to COVID related factors. Um, and so that's a really um, pretty uh, pretty great thing to see in terms of overall property performance across the, the Metroplex. Um, so while Fannie and Freddie were very, um, cautious at first. I think they've largely regained confidence in the North Texas um, market, and they are um, blazing forward in in the the realm of originations in terms of um, uh, their appetite for lending in in North Texas. That's not true in other markets, but um, it's a fantastic thing for uh, anyone looking to buy or refinance um in these markets uh that said they are still nervous about some things and taxes is really where they've become very conservative
0: so and i always like to ask this question what what are like where are they landing is on on taxes today they really go off your appraisal right and uh so i guess you know for the listenership you know they, they may be scattered across the country but since we're here in dallas fort worth let's talk about Dallas County and Tarrant County. Do you have kind of a ballpark or range um, for, for a uh, you know, percentage of purchase price for property taxes?
1: Yes. I'm happy to talk about that. Um, in the past, the agencies have been, um, have been very flexible and really have had a great um, open conversation with appraisers in terms of how we're looking at taxes in these two counties. Um, however, Since COVID, um, I've seen a huge tightening, especially on the part of of, uh, Freddie Mac in terms of how they want to look at at taxes on the pro forma and going forward. And in the past, we have really largely focused our tax analysis on tax comps that show um, price per unit and price per square foot assessments of nearby Similar properties. So it's what we would call you know, the peer group for any given uh, property. And if you own property in Texas and you've appealed your taxes before, you understand why those comps are so important. It's the entire basis for your appeal argument in Texas. And, um, and that's what we would focus on as appraisers as well. However, um, the agencies have really come to have a very strong focus on assessments of the percentage of purchase price, and while Texas continues to be a non-disclosure state, um, we're still seeing um, the agencies really insist that we use um, tax comparables that are um, assessment ratio comparables in addition to those assessments per uh, per unit and per square foot. So, that said, um, I can give you some some typical ranges that we would see. Um, Freddie tends to be a little bit more conservative these days than, than Fannie Mae. So, um, that's why these are ranges.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: so, for Class C assets, which I would – really, it's largely vintage-driven. I would describe that as anything 19 – 70s vintage and older, um, typically I see assessment ratios for agency deals from 60% to 70
0: to
1: 75%. Or 80s to 90s vintage deals, I see assessment ratios from 70% to 80%.
0: And and is And is this just in Dallas or is it across the Metroplex and does it depend on county?
1: This is this is across the metroplex, but I would uh, anything in Tarrant County, um, I would lean towards the upper end of these ranges. Um, yeah, certainly Tarrant County, um, as I'm sure is no surprise um, to anyone, is a bit more aggressive on their assessment ratios, and um, they like to hunt down those purchase prices if they can. Um, I, I actually was. Had a, had a conversation with someone the other day and I said, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they're finding these purchase prices. Um, it's impressive. So they, they're, they're, they're dogs on a hunt. Um, but 2000 vintage deals, I'm seeing assessment ratios from 80 to 90% of um, underwritten value or purchase price. Okay.
0: Awesome. Well, i um... I think we're almost out of time, so I, I do want to ask what is the best way for, for the listeners to reach out and connect with you, whether it be to learn more about your business, uh, whether you know, it could be a lender. I know there's some lenders that listen, and I'm sure you'd like to connect with them or maybe directly uh, with investors.
1: Absolutely. The best way to uh, connect with me is via email. My email address is A-I-M-E-E dot Morgan, N-O-R-G-A-N at A-M dot, dot com. And of course, you can always uh, look us up online um, at J-L-L dot com. Uh, we have a multifamily evaluation page that um, I'd be happy to distribute to anybody who's interested. But frankly, reach out to me directly. I'm so happy to talk to you guys and I'm so happy to interact with um, anyone that wants to learn more about what it is that we do, Um, and I'd love to just be able to point you directly to the resource that you're looking for. I really serve as a concierge of sorts, and so never hesitate to reach out and contact me directly and, and let me help you find what it is that you need.
0: Thank you. Amy is a wealth of information. And I really appreciate your time and coming on and talking a little bit about the appraisal process and what's changed and the market um, just across the board, uh, along with, you know, the, the lending environment as well. So thank you for all the information and I look forward to seeing you soon.
1: Absolutely. Look me up anytime I can help. Thanks, friend.
0: Thank you.